Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to be together again. I'm so excited about this chance we have to go down to Hearthside Park together. There's already several people uh, over there. Um, they've been there for a while this morning. And this is actually going to be our third year doing this, this community picnic at Hearthside Park. It's, and so it's going to be a great time. And I'm also really excited to wrap up the series we've been working our way through. As Blake alluded to a minute ago, Fragile Faith. We're talking about this shift from me to we this morning. And so uh, as a show of hands, how many of you have a fence somewhere on your property? Just somewhere on your property, you've got a fence. Okay, most of us in the room, uh, have you ever considered the pros and cons of fences? Fences have the ability to keep things in, but they also keep things out. Uh, fences keep strangers from wandering into our yard, which is a good thing, but they also keep friends from wandering into our yard as well. Uh, if you have a privacy fence like this one right here, after first service, somebody told me I look like Wilson. Uh, if, you're old, if you're old enough to know what that reference is to. <laughs> if you have one of these, if you have a privacy fence in your yard, the great thing about it is it keeps people from seeing into your property and your yard, which is what we want. That's the whole point. But it also keeps us from looking out and seeing our neighborhood and seeing other people for how they truly are. And not only that, fences will keep people from doing wrong things, which is why we put them up, but also fences can keep people from doing right things as well. Uh, as an example, last weekend, we had these storms that blew through. Do you remember that? Friday night and then again Saturday night, we had these high winds and these storms that blew through. I woke up on Saturday morning. I went outside into my backyard of my house, and uh, I realized when I went out that we had this very large tree that's on our property. Uh, there were some large limbs that came down in the wind and everything in the storm. And the only problem with that was this huge tree actually sits on the very edge of our property and so these large limbs that fell down, they actually fell down in our neighbor's yard inside their fence. They have this fence that goes along their property and our, our tree sits right alongside of it. And strangely enough, none of the limbs fell down in our yard. They only fell down in my neighbor's yard inside their fence and their property. Now, when I looked out and I saw this, I realized instantly that those limbs were my limbs. They were my responsibility. And so I didn't try to make the case, oh, well, technically, you know, the limbs fell down in my neighbor's yard, so I guess it's their problem. I didn't do that. I knew the right thing for me to do would be to go and to saw up those limbs and take them away and take care of, of those limbs because they were from my tree. The only problem was that I felt like I couldn't do that because of my neighbor's fence. I felt like, man, I can't just, you know, jump the fence and go into their property without asking permission. And so what I did is I walked around to the front door of their house and I knocked on their door and nothing happened. So I knocked again, I knocked again. It turns out they're not home. They, they were actually on vacation for a few days. And so when they didn't answer the door, I felt like, man, well, I just don't feel good about just jumping their fence and going into their property without permission. And so I just left it there. And a couple hours went by and eventually it's, it was just bothering me that these limbs are just left there. And so I started to worry. I started to have these thoughts like, man, what's going to happen if, you know, our neighbors come home and we're not there at the time and they, they see this mess in their backyard? What are they going to think about me? Like, man, that jerk, he just left those limbs sitting there in our backyard. So I thought, okay, what I'll do is I'll write a note and I'll take this note and I'll put it to the front door of their house so that when they come home, they'll know, you know, I, I'm aware of it. And so I started to write this note, but it just seemed awkward. Like I kept scratching stuff out. No matter how I wrote the note, I couldn't make it sound 
good. I mean, what do you say? Like, hey, it's your neighbor. I'm so sorry about the mess in your yard. By the way, I can't get on your Wi-Fi anymore. What's the deal with that? And, you know, no matter how I wrote it, it just seemed like this is awkward and, and weird and impersonal. And so finally, after a few hours more, I just got one of my sons and we eventually finally decided to just do the right thing, jump the fence, and we ended up sawing up the logs and taking them away. But what made that whole experience so weird was the fact that our neighbors had a fence. That's what created the whole drama of the situation in the first place. If I had walked outside and there was no fence and it just like the limbs had fallen on their property, I wouldn't even paused for a second, I would have just walked over, grabbed those limbs, pulled them over, and taken care of it. But the fact that there was this fence created this dividing line, created this barrier that made me wonder what the right thing to do was. This shift we're talking about today, from me to we, it means ignoring the man-made fences that are in our world. Sometimes, in order to do the right thing, in order to do actually the thing that Jesus calls us to do as his followers, you actually have to ignore the fences that get put up in our world by man. And that's what we're going to be talking today. That's what this shift is about, and that's the direction we're going. So if you think about it, in our world, individualism has, especially in the West, individualism has almost become its own religion. And we have this, this lingo and this language we use, I am an army of one. I have a special coffee drink that is, I can order just the way I like it that is to my unique individual personality. You know, I, I get on my iPhone and I go to my social media accounts where there is a picture of me as its profile. In our world, we are obsessed with asking the question, how am I distinct from everyone else? That's the question we are crazy about answering. From the time we're very young, this is the question we are obsessed with. How am I distinct? How am I special? How am I unique? How am I set apart? So when it comes to academics, when it comes to sports, when it comes to looks, whatever it is, it's all about how am I distinct? How am I set apart? How am I better or different than everyone else? That's the question we are asking all the time in our society. And actually, it's not just in our world or in our society. It's actually in the church we ask the same question was traveling for a few weeks this summer, and I don't know why this is. Whenever I go to a new city, I always notice this. This is true in our city, but for some reason I don't think about it until I go to a different city, and I always notice uh, when you see churches in any city, and every city they have it, churches are called like First Wesleyan or Second Wesleyan. You've seen this, right? There's Second Baptist, there's Third Reform, Fourth Reform, whatever. It's like there's this numbering system, and I always think to myself, how, who came up with those names, like, was there a playoff system that, like, determined the winner so that somebody could be called first or second or third? I'm not even sure the history of that or where it came from. But that's what we're, even in the church, we're obsessed with saying, this is how we're different. This is how we're set apart. This is the ranking, the numbering order, and this is how we're different from those other churches, those other people out there. And what Jesus comes to do is he comes to rid us of our fences of individualism. What actually happens is the longer you follow Jesus and the more your faith and, and your trust in him grows, the more and more you just see these fences less. These fences just become more and more invisible in our world as, as we begin to ask a different question. And the different question that Jesus asks, invites us to ask is, how am I the same as everyone else? 
How am I the same? How does the same humanity that lives in me also live in them? How does their need for a savior also exactly the same as my desperate need for a savior? How, how, are, how am I the same? That the Bible doesn't begin by telling some story about how we're all different, how we're all unique and special and, and distinct. The Bible begins with the story of humanity in a garden with Adam and Eve, the first human beings. And when they sin, it affects the entire world. And we're all living in this same situation, this same story. We all share a desperate need for a savior. In fact, we got, we got to remember that the beginning of the gospel, the starting place to understanding the gospel, the place that we all have to begin at, the first understanding we have to come to if we're going to embrace the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, is summed up so beautifully in Romans 3.23. It says, for we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us, as human beings, We've sinned. We've fallen short. There's not a single one of us that has somehow managed to measure up. God is a holy God, and he's set apart. He's perfect in all his ways. And we don't have it within ourselves to somehow measure up or to, or to somehow produce salvation for ourselves. And so the beginning place of the gospel is we all have sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have a need for a Savior. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to listen in. Last week, we began listening in on a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. John chapter 15, he's defining the relationship that he has with them. And the metaphor he uses, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he says, basically, as you remain in me and my words remain in you, that's how I will produce fruit in your life. But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the relationship that we have with Jesus is a relationship of dependence upon him, where we remain in him, we trust in him, and it's him that produces the fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. That's the context of relationship we have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up uh, John 15, starting in verse 12. We're going to pick up right where we left off, the very next verse where we left off last week. And it says this, Jesus continues this conversation by saying, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And what did he command? Love each other in the same way I have loved you. That's what he commanded. He goes on, I no longer call you slaves because a master does not confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the father told me. You didn't choose me, I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. This is my command, love each other. The sad truth is that a lot of churches today are basically just gatherings of people who love Jesus more than they love each other. In fact, some churches would, would use that as almost like a badge of honor. It's like, because I love Jesus, because we're committed to the truth thing, because we love Jesus so much, here's the list of people that we don't like. Because we love Jesus, we don't like these people. We, we hate these people. <laughs> Which is so 
opposite of what Jesus actually said. What Jesus actually said is, you are my friends if you do what I command. And what I commanded was, love each other as I have loved you. In another place, Jesus says, the whole world will know that you are my disciples because of your love, because of the way that you love. And, and how do we know what love is? It's because Jesus first loved us. So, so that's the context. That's what, that's, that's what Jesus is calling us into. Now, he uses this term friends. Jesus says, you're my friends. I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. The word friends was a really loaded term at this time in this culture in Jesus' day. It was kind of a complicated, confusing term. I would actually argue it's still in our world today for different reasons. It's a very complicated term. For Jewish people, which Jesus' disciples were all Jewish at this point when he's having this conversation, for Jewish people, Moses was called a friend of God. Abraham was called a friend of God. And so with Jesus, when he says, you are no, I, I call you my friends, it's kind of this elevated status. But yet, when you look at the larger culture and context of the word friend, in the Greco-Roman world of, of this time, uh, friend was like this weird hierarchical term. There were different levels and different kinds of friendships. In fact, Greco-Roman writers wrote extensively about friendship and about the difference in friendship and, what, and the different terms of what friendship could mean. And so uh, in, the, in the ancient world, there was patron-client relationships where basically a, a patron was somebody of a so, who was socially greater and they were supporting a social lesser person. And so the gods were considered patrons and the worshipers were their friends. That was the terminology that was used was you're a friend of the gods. There were patron cities where gods would be set up as the patron god of this city. And so you were a friend of that god if you were part of that city. And so it was this very watered-down sort of you know, blase term. And I would argue in our world today, when we say, how many friends do you have? What do you instantly think of? Facebook, right? Exactly. You instantly think of that. Now, how many people or followers, how many followers do I have on Instagram or whatever it is? We instantly think of friends are people who we push a button to like or to, to follow, and then we get to peer in to whatever highlights they offer up to their life. That's how we consider friends. When Jesus uses this word friend, it's a much more intimate term. Just as he's describing the relationship in such intimate means, when he uses this term friend, it's, it's a much deeper concept than the, than the concept of friend that we have or that the, the world at that time would have had. What Jesus is basically saying is, you are my friends, and what that means is you're a community of equals. I no longer call you slaves, but I call you my friends. And I've shared with you everything the Father has told me He's a community of equals that have a shared experience of the love of Jesus. If you think about human relationships, any human relationships, isn't it true that basically the way we bond with other people is when we share a common experience? It, the, the way that we bond, the way that we connect and bond with other people is we have some sort of shared experience and that's how we bond with them. For me, when I think about my life, every parent of a special needs child shares a day. We all share a day where we first heard the news. For us, it was when our son was two years old, and we, there was this word that we were sort of scared of and was bouncing around the back of our heads, but 
He wasn't, we knew he wasn't doing the same things that his older brothers had done at his age. He wasn't talking, he wasn't interacting. He would sit in his own little world for hours and like stack and order things in his little order. He would carry around red objects in his hands to the point where he wasn't developing, he wasn't using, learning to feed himself or do anything. And it was at two years old in a doctor's appointment that we first heard the word autism used to describe what we were experiencing. When I meet another parent of a special needs child, it actually happened to me earlier this week, uh, I can bond with that person quickly, almost instantaneously. Not because of anything I say or anything I am. It's because we share a day. We share an experience. All cancer patients share a day. We share a day when we first heard the news, when that word cancer was used to describe what we were experiencing. When, When you meet somebody who also has been through a cancer journey, you can bond with that person quickly. It doesn't take long because of a shared experience. Does that make sense? So all I'm saying is this. For us, for for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for Christians, for the church, we bond around our shared experience of the love of Jesus. A church is intended to bond around the person of Jesus and our shared experience of him. A church does not bond around a mission statement, as much as those of us who are leaders of the church wish that that was true. (laughs) A church doesn't bond around some goals or something that we're going to do A church bonds around the person of Jesus and our shared experience of him, of his love for us. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, my command, I call you my friends if you do what I command, and my command is love each other, what? As I have loved you. So their shared experience was Jesus' love for them. That was the shared experience that they were bonded around. How do you love others? How do you know how to love others? You love others the way that I have loved you. What Jesus is doing here is he's he's creating a we. As you've experienced my love, love others in that same way. And sitting there going, okay, that sounds great. Why do I care? If I could just say, here's what that means. If a church is actually a a group of people that bond around the person of Jesus and our shared experience of him and his love, What that means is that denominations are a man-made fence. God didn't make those. We're, We're Wesleyan. I love the fact that here at Frontline, we have people from a Baptist background, we have people from charismatic backgrounds, from Catholic backgrounds, we have people uh, who are, we have a few people who are actually from uh, Jehovah's Witness backgrounds, and we have others who have had no church background, they've had no faith or religious background at all. Frontline is the first church they've gone to. I love that. I love that about our church. The only reason that works is because if we're doing things right, if we're doing what we should be doing, the church isn't centered around those man-made fences. The church is centered around the person of Jesus and our shared experience of him, of his love for us. That's the only way we know how to love each other and treat each other. Race. That's another man-made fence. God didn't make that fence. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought God created all the different races. Actually, no. Did you know This is actually true. You can go Google this right now. It's very fascinating to me. They are actually saying now that biologically, they are scientifically positive that actually there are not multiple races in our world. There is only one race, the human race. 
In other words, there are different shades of the same pigment, and there are different uh, features from different, you know, geographical areas, but it's with the same genetic code. Essentially, there is only one race, and it's the human race. So this idea that there are multiple races and all that kind of, that's actually a fence we've created. And yet, Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour of the American week. That, that's, that's our fence. God didn't do that. God didn't direct that. Dare I go one more? Politics. This is going to blow some of your minds. I know. God is actually not a registered Republican or Democrat. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Can I get an amen somewhere for that? Okay. And I'm not saying it's wrong to have opinions or wrong to have ideas, but we as the church, we're not centered around the fences. If we do that, we're doomed to fail. We're doomed to fall apart. Things are doomed to break up as they do everywhere else around every other group of people in our world that centers themselves around their own fences. We are centered as a church around the person of Jesus and our shared experience of him. That's the only thing that actually works to bond ourselves around. What that means, as we think about our individual lives, when we make this shift, when we begin to move from me to we, what happens is we internalize Jesus' love for us so deeply that we begin to love other people who are different from us with that same love. Now, let me make something extremely clear. Listen to this. This is very, very important for you to hear. What that does not mean is that we affirm everybody else's life choices. There are people who believe that the only way you can truly love someone is if you affirm all of their life choices, which of course is ridiculous. Jesus did it all the time. Go read the Gospels. You see Jesus over and over again. He loved people completely and wholly, and yet he very clearly did not affirm all of their life choices and was clear about that. But when we begin to make this shift, we begin to be able to reach out and be, we begin to be able to walk that line and love other people the way he loved us. For us as a church, when we move to, from me to we, what happens is we begin to see people of every age, every color or pigment, every class and every capacity in our community coming together around the person of Jesus because he's the shared experience. And for us, as, as we think about our network of three churches, even as we gather later today at Heartside Park, uh, more and more what we're starting to realize for the Zero Collective is that this vision of zero is not just a vision for one church. It's, it's a vision for our entire region. And it's a shift from me to we, from us to, to all of us. But the only way it's going to work is if we're not centered around this stuff. The only way it's going to work is if we're centered around Christ, the person of Jesus, and we're centered around him first. That's the only way it's going to work. And so my challenge to you today, if I can give you a challenge, the challenge is to go first. That's what I want to invite you. That's what I want to challenge you to do. I think that's what Jesus is challenging his disciples to in this passage. What do I mean by that? Jesus is basically saying, look, this is the relationship you have with me. Depend on me, trust in me, rest in me. And then he says, love others in the same way I have loved you. 
what he's inviting us to do is to go first with his love in the same way that he did. In fact, what he says, John 15, verse 12, as he says, go first to lay down your life for others. Verse 12, he says, no man has greater love than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you realize Jesus was saying that less than 24 hours before he would do exactly that? Less than 24 hours later, he was going to offer his life on the cross, sacrificially. And all of us share a day. If we're followers of Christ, we share a day. And, and we share this day where it, it's like the sun broke through the clouds and it dawned on us that no matter what we did to try to fix ourselves, no matter how good we tried to be, and despite all of our brokenness and all of our sin, God has been pursuing each of us through the person of Jesus. And that Jesus' death on the cross was for you and it was for me personally. And the life that he invites us into is this life where we trust in him and we give him lordship of our lives. We all share a day, if we're a follower of Christ, where we gave Jesus lordship over our lives. And that's what he invites us into. Is he says, go first to love others. Not go first to prove that you're right and the other person's wrong. Go first to acknowledge where you're wrong. Go first, well, they you know, offended me and I offended them, so what? And Jesus says, go first. Go first to offer forgiveness. Go first to ask forgiveness. Be the kind of people in our world, be the first one to reach a hand across a man-made fence in our world. The longer you follow Jesus, the more you begin to make the shift, the more the fences just begin to become invisible or irrelevant. And you begin to reach your hand across the divide. What does it look like for you to go first in your love, to reach out in love, the love that Christ showed you to someone else outside of a man-made fence? Uh, I mentioned this is year three for us, going to our community picnic in Hartside Park. I had a weird experience. The first year we went, um, when we gathered down there, I was down there, we were at Hartside Park, all these people are gathering, and all of a sudden, somebody starts yelling my name, like, Brian, Brian. And I look around, and it's this woman who is coming toward me, this young, younger woman, and I have no idea who this person is. She's clearly one of the, the homeless uh, people who were down there at Heartside, but she knows me. She's calling me by name. Brian, Brian, and she comes up, and as she begins to talk to me, it was such a disorienting experience, I started to realize, I, wait, I recognize this person's voice. And as she talked, I, I began to realize who she was. She was a lot thinner, she'd lost a lot of weight. Her, her teeth were really uh, in, in bad shape. But, I, but I finally, I realized who she was, and, and the place I recognized her from was here, frontline. And about a year before that, this woman had been coming to our church. Uh, she'd been brought by another family here in our church. And at that time, she had custody of her two young kids. And she was in a recovery journey. She was working through um, the steps in, in an addiction recovery uh, process. And she began to come to the church and this, this family was bringing her and great things began to happen in her life. At a certain point, she actually trusted in Christ and she got baptized in one of our services that year. And she got connected to some other people. As a church, we helped her out. Uh, but as often sadly happens with people who are in that kind of place in life and going through that kind of a struggle or a journey, there came a point where she just disappeared. And even the people, the family that was bringing her, they didn't even know where she was or how to get a hold of her. She just disappeared 
And for months, I remember I thought about her because I would talk to her a lot of times after service, but I had no idea where she was. And she, had, she just disappeared for months. And I realized this is her. And clearly she's taken a step back in life. And, and she begins to tell me about how she lost custody of her kids. And then she ended up down there. She actually lived at that time now around Heartside Park, right in that area, spent most of her days there. And she talked to me about just her addiction and her struggle there. And she said to me, she said, you're never going to guess this. She said, last night, literally last night, I was so depressed. And she said, I, I just began praying to God. She said, I still think about Frontline. I still think about church. She said, I started praying and my prayer to God that I, I prayed, I said, God, would you show me a sign if you still want me? That was her prayer. God, would you give me a sign if you still want me? She said, you'll never believe. I woke up this morning and there are all these people here in Heartside Park. And about the time she woke up was probably about the time that volunteers were there setting up stuff. And she said, I, I start to walk around and all these people are here in Heartside Park. She's like, wait a minute, I recognize that person. Wait, I know them. Oh, wait, I know these people. She, she says, I realize my church has come down to Heartside Park and is here actually at church, or here actually at Heartside Park. And then this is what she said. She said, do you think, could it be that this was the sign that I was praying for last night? See, the most amazing thing that happens when we begin to make this shift from me to we is that at a certain point in our growth, and as a, at a certain point as we begin to love others the same way that Jesus loved us, we get to this point where we actually come to the realization that the church does not exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. 